We turn together in God's word now to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. There's an outline on pages 4 and 5 if you'd like to follow along. We are in week 2 of this Advent series, Isaiah chapter 9. Hear now God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. We live in a world without much hope. People seek for hope, they search for hope, and they cling to what little hope they might think they have, but it's elusive. Handel knew about this. Do you know George Handel, the composer, born in 1685 in Germany? Originally, he was going to be a lawyer. He loved music. He was excellent at organ and composing, so he began to be a musician. And as you read this today, was some of Handel in your head, maybe? Well, Handel's Messiah, his most well-known work, draws not only from Isaiah chapter 9, but as you listen to it, from the entirety of the scriptures, the prophecies of the Messiah like here, the suffering and death of the Messiah, the glory and the return of the Messiah. As you listen to it, rejoicing really fills our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to see here today in Isaiah chapter 9. A child is promised who is the answer to a hopeless, weary world, to a materialistic world, to a dark world, to sinful hearts like ours. The chapter progresses. Darkness is replaced by light, war by peace, distressed by joy. The child that will be born of a virgin, we saw that in Isaiah 7 last week, will also bring salvation to his people. That's what we see today as this growing crescendo of the gospel builds. He comes not as a messianic pretender, not as a political zealot, 
But as God in the flesh, the promised son of David, the king of the Jews, he comes to bring salvation to a people in need of hope. First, we see the darkness without God. In the days of Israel that Isaiah was prophesying, there was corruption without and within. The political situation was a disaster. Those who were leading the nation were calling good evil and evil good. The northern kingdom of Israel had turned against the southern kingdom of Judah, and these brothers and sisters in Israel were fighting amongst each other. In 732, eight years after his grandpa Uzziah died, the king of Judah, Ahaz, went to Damascus and said, I'm going to make a covenant with the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III. I guess they like that name. That was the war machine. That was the threat. That was what everyone was afraid of in those days. So he discarded the promises of God, didn't want the sign that Isaiah the prophet offered him from God, and instead made a covenant with Assyria. The people were living in a land of deep darkness. Darkness here is a symbol of sin, gloom, hopelessness, despair, in much of the same way that Romans 1 describes the fallen world. Isaiah 8 says, it's so thick, you can hardly breathe, the darkness is all around you. You see that with Zebulun and Naphtali mentioned. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 9? These are the northernmost tribes. These tribes, two of the twelve tribes of Israel, were rebellious and unfaithful. And they were almost always under the attack of other nations. When a foreign army would invade, they would come up over the Fertile Crescent, and Galilee of the nations, that's what that area is called, would be attacked first. And sure enough, that's what happened with Assyria. Around 733 BC, they came in, they attacked. And just like God had said in the Mosaic Covenant, If you disobey me, these curses will come upon you. Four nations will invade, Leviticus 28 and other places. That's what's happening here. The curses are coming upon them. First, to the northern kingdom, 722, with Assyria. Isaiah 8.22 seems to look forward even beyond this to what would happen to the southern kingdom in 586 when Babylon would take them captive. But the bigger problem than darkness without was the darkness within Israel as a nation. If you went to that place in that day, you would see temple worship happening in some ways, but a lot of idolatry had invaded, and their hearts were far from God. The outward form of externalism and formalism was there. But Isaiah said, your ears are hard. They're not hearing the word of God. The sin of false worship was accompanied by drunkenness, Isaiah 5, sexual immorality, Isaiah 3, superstition and fortune-telling, Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 8. They had grown bored with God's word. They were seeking to bring up someone from the dead or to, to seek Satan's word rather than God's word. The heart of man is proud. Isaiah himself, the prophet, spoke to them the word of God, but they despised it. Do you remember last week? Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant. 
He's not the father. There was a bigger picture story there than just that going on in Matthew 1. Israel, as a nation, was an unfaithful wife to her husband, Jeremiah chapter 3. But instead of putting her away forever, the Lord came and rescued his bride through a child to be born of a virgin. We are that adulterous, unfaithful people apart from Christ. But God has not left us in our sin. He's not left Israel in their darkness. A light shines, secondly, to bring delight in God. The transition from Isaiah 8 to chapter 9 is one of the most amazingly beautiful in all the Bible and gracious. We think of Romans 3. All have sinned. Our mouths are shut. We've broken God's law. But now... God has revealed a righteousness in Christ. Or Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but God. Oh, what a glorious but that is. And here we see it again. This is the rally cry of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and ours today as well. After darkness, light. That's important because every generation needs to rediscover the biblical truth of the law and gospel. The darkness of false teaching and heresy and immorality continues to creep in. The church must be brought back to the word of God again and again, in our day just as in Isaiah's day. Isn't it interesting as a side note, this time of year when it's the darkest in terms of daylight, all the lights, Christmas lights in neighborhoods, As Christians, those things can remind us of Christ, the light of the world, who comes to shine. And this prophecy of Isaiah is so certain that it will happen, that Isaiah speaks in the past tense of something that has not yet happened and won't happen for 700 years. Do you notice that? The people who walked in darkness have seen. The darkness Isaiah speaks of will get much worse in the decades following. And the light won't come for 700 years in the coming of Jesus. But this is the certainty of God's word. He says it. It is true. Look at the joy that comes, verse 3, in the midst of this darkness. Joy is compared here to two things. Kids, you might have joy when you eat a big marshmallow cookie. Or you get to have your favorite meal at Christmas or a present to open. This joy is compared, first of all, to a crop and a farmer that sees the bountiful harvest come in. And then a warrior and a battle and a victory in that battle. Verse 3. But the image of this asks us, where does this joy come from? Because in Israel, there was not this happening. There was famine in these days physically and also spiritually. There were military losses piling up. So how could you speak of joy like that? You look at verse 3, who is the you there? The you is God. You have multiplied the nation. God will take a remnant of the nation of Israel that believes and multiply it into a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, Revelation 7. In fact, 
Do you know that the very place where God's people suffered the most, Zebulun, Naphtali up there in the north, is where Jesus begins his public ministry at age 30 in Capernaum. When Jesus speaks in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of God is here, he is fulfilling what Isaiah said in chapter 9. In that Galilee of the north. This is where God's salvation comes, just like God promised to Simeon, a light of revelation to the nations. The glory of the joy that comes from God is a gift. God himself is our joy. Satan has blinded the minds and the eyes of the unbeliever from seeing the light of the gospel of Jesus. But God, who shone in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, gives us the light of the knowledge of the grace of God in Christ. It's a gift of God, beloved. It's the grace of God that gives you this joy by the Spirit of God. You don't kind of stir it up yourself. You don't say, well, I've got to try harder. I've got to be joyful. I've got to beat myself up. I've got to be... No, it's the grace of God. Through the Word of God. By the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. How will we enter such joy? Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Do you see the four there? We are weak, but God is strong. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Israel is pictured like a large ox with a yoke on it, oppressed and burdened with sin, with Assyria, with Babylon. But behind it all is Satan, the enemy of our souls. God will break the rod of the oppression, not just of a nation like Assyria, but of Satan himself. In fact, God has his people among the nation of Assyria. You read that later in Isaiah. He will gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Isn't that amazing? Read Isaiah 19 and see the beauty of God's grace there. Jesus will come, but how will this be done? This is 700 years before the coming of Christ, right? Look at verse 4, Isaiah 9. God will break this oppression, Satan's behind it, like in the day of Midian. Now that's interesting. Who is Midian, children? Well, when you think of Midian, you think of Gideon. It rhymes. Judges 6. Do you remember Gideon? God raises up this judge. The Midianites are as numerous as the locusts. They're everywhere. Okay, Gideon, you got to go into battle. How about we start with maybe, how many, 30,000? Is that a good place? 30,000 men, but these are not warriors. These are farmers. Okay, let's go there. Nope. How about 22,000 farmers against the, the ravaging Midianites? Nope, not 22. How about 10,000? No, not 10. Do you remember, children? 300! And what would you do battle with with these 300 farmers against the Midianites? Like New Age rockets and Air Force and... No, how about torches and jars and trumpets? How about that? How about you shout, you smash the trumpet? Is that going to work? Do you see what this is about, children? Not by might, not by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord. God accomplishes this victory. 
The unique part of verses 4 to 7, Isaiah 9, is that this is talking about no human in this world. No strong man to bring you this victory. Not in this world. The subject of verses 4 to 7 is God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring this about. And it will come, third, by deliverance through a child. This passage is all about children. Isaiah's child coming to meet Ahaz. The virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah's second child being born with that long name, Meher Shalal Hasbaz. Remember that last week? The Prince of Peace coming. Leading forward to chapter 11, the stump from the root of Jesse. God's answer to everything that has terrorized us is the birth of a child. His answer to hopelessness and darkness is the coming of a child. God is so powerful that all these big shots of the world think they can do whatever they want. God says, I'm going to send a humble child into the world to save you. The child must be born. See that, verse 6? This child is fully human. He became flesh. He did not change. He is truly God. But he takes on the DNA of David and Abraham before that and his mother Mary. He's made like us in every way except sin. He's born. There's the joy, verse 3, that now we see in verse 6. What did the angels say to those shepherds? For behold, fear not, I bring you good news of what? Great joy. That will be for who? All the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ is our joy. Christ is our reward. And what kind of child is this? Look at the names of this child. This is no ordinary child. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is worthy to bear these names. This describes who he is. In the ancient world, they would name someone because that would be kind of a signifying nature of what that person was like. Kids, your mom and dad maybe named you for different reasons. That's okay. Esau, remember that Old Testament guy? He was named Esau because he came out what? Red and hairy. That's an interesting type of hairy baby, right? That, that's why Esau, that's what the name means, red. Well, this name, Handel was right, is beyond their description. Wonderful. Samson's parents, his father, speaks to an angel, the pre-incarnate son of God, most likely. Who are you, this angel of the Lord? He says his name is what? Wonderful. Beyond comprehension. Surpassing human thought and power. This shows the deity of the child. Counselor. He is wise. He's a king that is perfect in wisdom, doing justice and righteousness in the line of David, the righteous branch, Jeremiah 23. How unlike any ruler of this age. How unlike Ahaz, who is crafty and shrewd and wicked and cunning and evil. This king is one that you can go to in your grief and he will counsel you because he is perfect wisdom from God. He knows your struggle. 
He knows your affliction. He knows your temptations. He knows your grief. He knows the depths of your heart in a way that even we don't understand. He understands our sinfulness far better than we do, and he's gentle with you. He doesn't beat you up. He says, come to me in your weariness. Here's an application of this. Paul Tripp says, in the rush and press of life, I can lose my mind. Anybody there? Moments, he says, when I lose my gospel mind. That I live as if God doesn't exist. When does that happen, he says? Times when I lose sight of God are times when it alters what I desire, how I think, the things I say, the things I do. Maybe it's an argument you had this week with a spouse or a child. You wanted to be right, you lost your gospel mind. That's happened to me. I'm no different than you. I struggle with sin. Maybe it's a time when you think, I need to be in charge and in control of my relationships. You lost your gospel mind. Maybe you're passive and complacent with your faith or with your children or with your spouse. You've lost your gospel mind. Maybe it's envy or bitterness or sexual immorality or ripping into a teenager, vengefully. You've lost your gospel mind. The good news of Christ is that he meets us with the gift of grace. He meets us in the point of our sorrow, our sin, our need, and our suffering. He does so with the church gathered. That's why we need to gather together to be reminded of who we are in Christ and who he is for us. To be reminded that the most valuable thing you and I have in life is not something you can buy. It's not an experience. It's the gift of eternal life in Jesus. Forgiveness and righteousness through his life, death, and resurrection for us. He is wonderful counselor. What does this mean? It means that the deeper into weakness and suffering and testing you go, the deeper Christ and his solidarity with you. That's what brings you to repentance. That's what renews your hope and joy that is inexpressible. He is mighty God. He is no mere man. Everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. Unchanging, eternal, infinite in power and glory. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He is God over all, blessed forever. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. If you are here today and don't know who Jesus is, this is the Word of God saying that He is God in the flesh. He has omnipotent power. He's not weak. Do you remember when He was born? How did Herod, the fake king, respond? He flipped He freaked, much like Ahaz or Esau. Herod was in the line of Esau. The birth of a child. He says, we've got to kill every boy two years and under in Bethlehem. Why did he do that? Because when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was an earthquake in the kingdom of Satan. It spelled the doom of Satan. He came to destroy the works of the devil as a warrior. He came to disarm the powers and authorities on the cross. He came, as Genesis 3 said, to crush the head of the serpent. He is mighty God, everlasting Father. 
from eternity to eternity. This reminds us of Micah 5. From ancient of days. Do you know, loved ones, that the eternal God is your home? We will find no lasting home in this world. God is our dwelling place. And this Jesus is God in the flesh. Everlasting Father, not saying that he is the Father. There can be some confusion there, right? He's not the first person of the Trinity. He's the second person. Not that there's a difference in authority, but there are three persons in one God. The Son became man. He's not the Father, but the word here, Father, is saying he is one who rules. That's why it's said in this way. He fulfills the promise made to David. He's the king, David's greater son, who sits on the throne forever. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. He's sovereign. Every kingdom of the earth is under his control. The kingdoms rage, but he controls them all by his sovereign control. Peace and government are mentioned together. Do you notice that? That doesn't usually happen. Usually you have war in government, conquering in government, bloodshed in government, tyranny, but not here, not with this king, because his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It goes forth by his word, by the gospel, by the spirit. It brings repentance into the hearts of his people. It doesn't advance by political instruments, but by the grace of God. He is everlasting Father. He cares for you. He knows you. He loves you. This time of year, some of the highest rates of depression and suicide are found all over the world, Christmas time. You may be here and you may not have an earthly father. None of us has a perfect earthly father, but your earthly father may have been distant or abandoned you or checked out or harmed you verbally, physically. That's not this father. Jesus is one who loves you with a perfect, gentle love. He is the father of the fatherless, Psalm 68. He is the protector of widows. Jesus loves you. He freed you from your sins by his blood. He is born for you. Do you notice that? It's personal. It's not abstract. The Lord has come near to you. He is Emmanuel. Cry out to him. Do you trust him? Do you cast yourself on him by faith? Do you know his grace and love for you? That the heart of the covenant of grace is that God says, I am your God, you are my people. A loving relationship with his people is what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit desires. I am his and he is mine. He is the Prince of Peace. These names build, just like Handel's Messiah builds. The word for peace in the Old Testament is shalom. More than just the absence of war, but the presence of wholeness, beauty, health, well-being. Before the fall, there was peace, but not peace like this. Because that peace was broken. Satan came. And now, when Adam and Eve sinned, we are all born by nature, hating God and hating our neighbor. We all naturally demand our own way. We turn aside. 
We do what is right in our own eyes. Our ugly really comes out when people disagree with us. Then we really get defensive. Then we really go on the attack or withdraw or both. We need someone to make peace. Peace between us and a holy God. Peace among us as God's people. Jesus is the child who is the Prince of Peace. How does that peace come? Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Colossians says, God made peace by the blood of his cross. God couldn't just forgive sins. Justice must be done. Blood must be shed. A substitute must be given. Propitiation must be made. The new covenant in the blood of Christ is that very thing that brings peace. The price of peace. It's an extraordinary cost. Grace to us. Suffering and death for him. This is the only peace that lasts through time and eternity. It's the only hope to be found. Running to him as our refuge and strength. By faith and repentance. How do you know God loves you? Because things are going well? Because our health is intact? Our circumstances change. The measure of love is how much it gives. Isaiah says, this son is given to you. The gift of the father. He so loved you that he gave his son who became man, who is the mediator to bring us to God who is the one we worship and adore, who is the one our sinful hearts need to find enjoyment and salvation, rest and peace. There's a lot of anxiety in our hearts in this fallen world. And so we pray that the peace of God, which comes to us as we are justified by faith in Christ, will guard our hearts and minds this Christmas and always. Of the increase of this peace, there will be no end. Remember the story of World War I? Christmas Day, they have a temporary truce. Remember that? The soldiers come out, they talk to each other, they sing Christmas carols together, they play a soccer game. On the Western Front, in the middle of that bloody battle, World War I, it didn't last, did it? And so in this world, we are not yet in this day when peace will know no end. But that day will come when Isaiah 9, 5 will be fulfilled, when there will be a bonfire of boots that are burned and all the instruments of war that are no more. When the smoke goes up from the battlefield, it's a picture of Christ and his victory, his triumph over sin and death and Satan and hell. It's a wonderful reality, Christian. One day, all evil will be no more. Christ will return in glory. So Emmaus wrote, we don't live like chicken little. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. We live with a confidence in Jesus. A hope that the victory is won by Christ. He has opened to you the access to the heavenly city. The future resurrection of your body is guaranteed, Christian. He has overcome. Your sins are atoned for. Even though right now it's filled, our life is with trouble, suffering, and tribulation. The inheritance is waiting for you, Peter says. 
we are called to be salt and light, knowing that after we have suffered for a little while, we will be established in glory. If you don't know Christ, come to him today by faith. If you know Christ, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. He is your wisdom. He is the love and care that you need. His second coming will bring you peace and everlasting salvation. Is that too good to be true? Isaiah 9, 7 says it's not. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do we live each day looking forward to Christ's second advent? If we're honest, we would say we struggle. Sinclair Ferguson said that recently. Do you know that it is spiritually healthy for you and me to remember that Jesus, who came at Bethlehem as a baby, will return in glory and majesty and to live each day crying out, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come when that day of the final finale of the Messiah will be sung. When Revelation 11 will be true, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And we all say, and he will reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.